I'm Steve McLeod and this is Bootstrapped. It's a podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one. I run two bootstrapped software products, Feature Upvote, which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product, and Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts, and just maybe you'll learn something too. Ed, I've been up working since 7am today. Well, are you sick? <laughs> I wish. We were doing a server changeover and we figured that was the best possible time in which if something went wrong, it would have the least impact on anybody anywhere. 7am Spain time is also 7am South Africa time where my system administrator is. All right. Okay. That's convenient having your remote team in the same time zone. Yeah, I'm enjoying that after getting back from Australia where nothing's in a convenient time zone. So we have this server and Sabre feedback that was running on a version of an operating system, Ubuntu or something, that was no longer supported. It was so old. I don't think it had been updated in five years or more. So it was time to update, but it's never something I really feel comfortable doing. See, man, this is, you've got to make it a regular habit. This is why you got to have an upgrade day every six months and stay on top of it. But especially with your database, the problem is if there are like security issues, you know, you read these horror stories about people, you know, people have scanners that are just trying every server to try to get into the database. And if, if you have an old version, somehow they get in and delete all your data or whatever. So probably worth updating regularly. Couldn't agree more. Um, this for me is an advantage of having a system administrator available as a freelancer who regularly does these things for me. So this is the first of a couple of servers we need to change. This was the easy one because it doesn't have a database on it and therefore it doesn't have live updating data. Maybe next week we'll be able to do the one that does have live updating data. That's a little bit more complicated. But it's no good when you go into DigitalOcean or Linode, the two hosts we're using, and this big warning saying that this server has not been updated since, and it's a time that's years in the past. Yeah. And warning you of security updates and so on. So it's a whole bunch well, of, of housekeeping we've been doing for Sabre feedback. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think the best way to deal with that is to make it a regular part of your process. That's I, kind of the yeah. approach we take. So what else have you been up to, Steve? So another thing we did is change the primary domain name of our email server. That one made me even more nervous because if I screwed that one up, then it would mean no email getting through. And knowing there was no email getting through, it's hard to tell if you're not getting email because no one's writing to you or because your email server's wrong. And that was, again, a bit of history with Sabre. It used to be called Bug Muncher, and the name was changed uh, two or three years ago. And Sabre Feedback was added in Gmail. We're using G Suite for email. The new domain name was added as say like an alias. And I didn't like that. Like I still had to sign in to Gmail with the bugmuncher.com email address. And if I didn't, if I wasn't careful, I'd accidentally send emails from that email address. So it was time to make Sabre Feedback the primary email domain name. Yeah, that's a tricky one. We have similar issues. Also, my company email is just an alias to my private Gmail. And that is the kind of thing I've been meaning to sort out for a long time. And you're so right. It's so annoying because you never know. Like, 
is someone not answering because they didn't get my email because it went to their spam filter or because, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's fiddly. And Gmail or the G Suite console even had big warnings saying that if you do this for 30 minutes or so, you may not be able to receive email. So I figured, well, I've got to do it at some point. I could do it, wait into the future when we're getting more emails and getting more customers. So I could do it today, today being two weeks ago, and just rip that Band-Aid off. So I did it, and I'm glad I did. The other thing I've been doing along these lines is going through our website, the Sabre Feedback website, and carefully checking for broken internal links and pages that have other problems like typos or the missing like well-defined description meta tag and so on. Are you using any tool to do this? Are you doing it manually or how are you doing um, it? Using a, a tool and sort of kind of doing it manually. So Ahrefs, which we use as an SEO tool to help us with our SEO efforts, also does an audit of a site, which is pretty cool. It goes through and finds all these problems. So I've just been going through one by one and then running the audit again and fixing the problems especially as I've been deleting a whole lot of blog posts that get no traffic and are not relevant to us anymore. And as I delete them, I try carefully to make sure if there's any, any internal links, I'm not breaking them, but it's, it's hard. So this, this tool has been really helpful. Are you, you're a paid customer of Atrus? Yeah. Yeah, we are a paid customer. It costs a lot of money, but we get, we get value out of it. And when we stop getting value, I'll cancel. I looked at it a while back and it was it was just expensive enough that I was like, eh, I, yeah. thought, I don't know. I mean, I guess in your case, taking over a new site and you have a lot of work to do, then it definitely makes sense. But like once you've done all that cleanup, then the question, yeah. you know, can you still justify the cost? Is the... Yeah, it's certainly one I often think about whether we should cancel. I think I wrote to them asking them if they had a discounted plan and they just said outright, no, no discounts. Well, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Okay. okay, why should they give you a discount? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking about cancelling. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But I think the value uh, for HRFs, particularly, is for agencies that, like SEO agencies, that have multiple clients for whom it's just a no-brainer to give them money. Yeah, if you had lots and lots of sites, you would definitely need these tools. The issue is, if you only have one or, or a handful of sites, then it, maybe it doesn't make sense to have that ongoing it's, it's amazing going through an existing website that's been around for 11 years the amount of craft that it collects oh I'm uh, sure like I'm some sure. videos that we are hosting on you know, on the site but without any way to actually watch them you know whatever site whatever page they're on the link to a video was removed but we still kept the assets and this has been deployed every time it's just slowing mm. things down slightly well good sounds like you're crossing a lot of things off the old uh, to-do list Congrats. Yeah, I can't tell you how much pleasure I get from this type of stuff. I don't know if in the long run it is actually good for business or not. I mean, it's not bad for business. Is it good? I don't know. But it just brings me, I get a feeling of contentment as these things gradually develop order and are up to date. I see two things there. One is I, I think it probably does help. Obviously, like fixing the SEO errors does help. But also, I think it probably helps also for your own mental state i mean now you have things simplified and it's easier to understand what you have and what you don't have especially given that's a site you've taken over so you're not you know now you know it inside now which is probably necessary so probably makes sense yeah yeah and even if it doesn't i i just enjoy doing it and it's one of the joys for me of owning my own business is that i don't need anybody's permission to spend time on doing the things that i think are important to me right now 
Well, this this brings us a bit to our topic for today, Steve, which is refactoring and code refactoring. Should you refactor your code? How frequently should you refactor your code? Is it a waste of time? And I guess let me tell my side because I, how we came to this topic, you know, uh, as listeners may recall. One moment, just before you do, I'll just define refactoring for people for whom this might not be a, uh, a right. term they're familiar okay. with, or they might have a different understanding of it. So we're talking about, I'm using Wikipedia's definition, the process of restructuring existing code without changing its external behavior. So you, you change the structure or the implementation, but it still works exactly the same. So it's not about fixing Thanks. bugs. It's or adding new features. It's specifically about making changes that no one can actually see except the developers. Right. Although I, I think when you refactor, you often a you in best case you might discover bugs that you aren't aware of, and but of course worst case you may be introducing bugs <laughs> yeah. that you um, are unintended. But so as listeners may recall, recently we rolled out a new form of billing on uh, OpenKH where you can now do one-time purchases. And we were kind of under a bit of time pressure because I was about to go on holiday and my, my partner was about to go on holiday and, and go away for a bit. So we really wanted to get that out before beforehand. And in going through everything, we realized that our database and you know previously we had only had subscriptions and basically our code made lots of assumptions that that a user, a customer had to have a subscription. So you know, we saw lots of places where like, oh, the, you know, a one-time purchase doesn't make sense in this kind of mental model. And we found lots of places, things we could clean up and just, you know, the code base has been kind of growing organically over the years. And as you, when you dive deeper into it, you always see things that you could fix or adapt or whatever. So we have on our list, when we come back after the summer to dive into doing a cleanup and a big refactoring. But the question is, does that make sense? Is it worth spending the time on that? Because you know the, the counter argument would be never touch a working system. And, and we do have a working system right now. And so I was kind of interested in you get your opinion on this. Like, what, how do you think about that? And how do you, how often do you kind of do code cleanup? Do you at all? Do you not? You know, how do you approach this? It's a good question. I don't have a certain answer, but I do know that if it's code that I haven't written, but somebody else has written for me, I don't care what it looks like or if it's chaotic or whether sometimes should be spent improving it. I figure it's working. Like It's for me a black box. So that's my perspective on code I haven't written. But if I have written it, my perspective is completely different. Then I'm always thinking like, oh, this, I should spend time fixing this up. I should get rid of to-dos. I could improve the structure. And that approach, I, I don't know if it's better to take the manager approach, like the code works, let's leave it, or if I should take the developer approach, thinking the changes I make now will make the code easier for development in the future so we can roll out new features quicker, we have less chances of bugs, et cetera. It's a really hard thing balance to make. And yeah. I've, as, as I've been running my own business, it's changed my perspective. When I was a developer for somebody else, I get really frustrated when I couldn't make the manager understand the, the value of refactoring. Well, I guess it depends on how long you're planning for that code to exist. And But, you know, as the saying goes, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary solution, right? <laughs> and so you always have all these little things where you're like, oh, let's just get this done before the weekend or before the trip or what, whatever. And then, you know, three years later, it's still there. So... I think a lot about that saying as you know, we've been running our business now for five years. And I think sometimes about that saying, uh, you know, live as if you're going to die tomorrow, farm as if you're going to live forever. 
for, for okay, people who, okay. and and in some ways it's it's very applicable to to SaaS, right? Because if if you have this, if you think of yourself as like I'm running a lifestyle business that is going to be my continual kind of source of income, then it, it's a long term asset like a farm, right? And that requires I have to maintain it. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, I have to, I'm going to be the one or, or maybe not me literally at the keyboard, but, but my team and I, we're going to be the ones maintaining this. So we should, we should make sure we do have a regular schedule of how we update things and apply security patches, but also that we clean up the code and okay. you know, write the tests and all those kinds of things. So in that regard, it makes sense to set aside regular time for refactoring. But on the other hand, you know, the customers will never see the difference. and so. And you might break things. You might break things. The point is, or the, the what I understand from your point about farmers, if you'll live forever, is that what would future Ed think? Ed, in two years' time, what would he think about the work you do today in refactoring? He'd probably be grateful, I think. Absolutely. Although he'd also be grateful if I instead spent the time working on marketing or whatever and got a new big customer, you know, so... But then, then as I thought about this, um, the reason I particularly wanted to ask you, Steve, is in the last six months or, or whatever in the last year, you both sold a company, uh, sold a product, and and bought one. So mm-hmm. I thought and another reason to have very clean, up to date code and well structured code, of course, is that in theory this would be more valuable to a buyer if you mm-hmm. ever did want to sell the business. So I'm wondering maybe you could talk about in your transactions, both as a seller and a buyer. You know, was this an issue? Did the buyer look at the code when you were evaluating? I, I think I remember with Saber Feedback that you said you didn't look at the code too closely. So give us your perspective there. How do you see it? Okay, let's start with the product I sold late last year. That was the poker software. As the sale looked like it was going to happen, I went into coding overdrive. I coded on it like I never had before and it was purely refactoring. You know, like there was two database tables that were virtually the same data and they should have been one table and I fixed that up and and I went through all the to-dos and I made sure that we didn't have hard-coded API keys in the the source code, but that was put out into environment variables. But weren't you you worried at the last second you were going to introduce some bug or something? I mean, and... I was, but I was also thinking to myself, like, how would I explain why things are the way they are to the new buyer? If I knew there was going to be a training period after the purchase, how would I explain why it's like this? Like they're going to say to me, oh, why is this two database tables? And what's my answer going to be? Well, because I did it as a quick fix and I always knew that was wrong and I never got around to it. So they never before the purchase looked at the code, but I kind of kept on thinking like, how embarrassed I would be trying to explain these things. That's quite funny, Sue, because you just yourself said that when when thinking about someone else's code, you don't care. All you care uh-huh. is that it works, right? Uh-huh. I think that I had an emotional attachment to that product. I had been working it for so long. It was almost my identity uh, in some circles. And I don't know, I, I had some sort of sense of pride Sure, but but that's the risk with refactoring, right? I mean, yeah, I, yeah. of course, if you wanted to, you can end, you could spend all day every day just endlessly rewriting your code. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you your can. business would never go forward. So, and I did introduce a bug. They, they took uh, a month to be discovered Oof. with some of our translations. The wrong 
instead of the translation appearing in some case, the translation key was appearing. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, sure. and yeah, that was also a problem is that I didn't have proper testing in place. And apparently that's what you're supposed to do with refactoring. Put proper testing Start in place. Start with the test, yeah. Especially unit testing. It's, it's so hard to test every permutation yeah. and something like that. Like how would you have caught that? I mean, exactly. I guess you could look for the any translation key, but whew, struggle. I look, I had awesome, I had fantastic unit testing in place, especially on calculations and stuff, but I didn't have any like end user testing or acceptance testing in place. And that was the problem. Yeah. How, how could I, well, I could have, but, uh, but then the products go to the product I bought. So again, the same, the same sort of thing happened in the, the last weeks before I purchased it. The previous owner spent quite a lot of time updating things like updating to a more recent version of Ruby on Rails and uh, making other changes and so on. And I, I think maybe it was the kind of same, same mentality. Well, sure. we actually ended up making a condition when I realized it was on a no longer supported uh, version of Ruby on Rails. We put it into the contract that it needed to be updated, but that's kind of a different story. But there were other things that the previous owner was doing, I feel kind of out of a sense of pride. Hmm. And, and so what do you do now in, in feature upvote? How often are you kind of refactoring? or Not as often as I'd like, because if it was up to me and there were no business concerns, I'd probably just spend all day doing this stuff. Nothing brings me satisfaction as much as a day spent tidying up a code base. Sure. And I could do this, this ad infinitum, sometimes going backwards and forwards, deciding that having things split out into packages is better. And then the next day I decide that actually having it all on a big monolith is better. So I, I try not to do this very often because I know myself. I know it's that thing I will do all day if I if I can. Well, that's why I'm trying to think of the strategy that we should use. So we are going to do some refactoring. We definitely need okay. to because of this issue with like the different type of billing. But the question is, how do we, how do we kind of limit that in scope so that we don't get, mm. you know, do we make it one week or do we make it three weeks or what do we, you know, how do we yeah. do the work that makes sense without going beyond that? I always found the best refactoring was what they call micro refactoring, just tiny little things. Like almost every time you're fixing a bug, you also spend a little bit of time improving the structure of that area and just working on that approach. In fact, that book by um, Martin Fowler that's called Refactoring, I believe it was the book that introduced this to the wider public. I'm almost certain that this is the what he argues is that it should just become part of any work. When you're adding a new feature or fixing a bug, just put in a little bit of time into that process of improving the existing structure. Yeah, I think that does make sense, but obviously that that doesn't work when you're trying to like combine two database tables or whatever. Yeah. Like there, you you need to either yeah you, know, you need to dive in or you need to stay out of the pool. So. Yeah, and I, I think the book has a section on that too, talking about there's sometimes the the micro refactoring approach just doesn't work, and you do have to just accept that these are going to be big changes that are probably going to cause some problems that you're going to have to find and fix. You avoid the situation as much as possible, but when you identify it, you just do it. Yeah, I think what we're going to do is set aside a block of time. I don't know if it'll be one week or two weeks or whatever, and just very systematically say, like, you know, it's got to be done in that block of time. And, yeah. uh, you know, probably we'll spend the first day, we'll spend maybe an hour or two defining the list of what all the goals are. And I also thought about bringing in, you know, we work with several freelancers, maybe have a freelancer come and just help us with the tests. That I way think. you have someone someone writing the test who's not 
in any way emotionally attached to the code base, you know, and they can just help us ruthlessly help us find all the errors and things like that. So how well is the, is your code base tested? Pretty well, actually, pretty well. Um, almost to the point actually where then a lot of the refactoring is kind of correcting the tests, <laughs> you know, because in some in some cases I find the tests are a little too pedantic, but I, I, I think we do a good job. And we, we do have regular, as one of our regular days that we do once a quarter or so, it's kind of testing day. And we're, we're quite good about before we make a change, we write the test and then make sure it passes and things like that. So. Okay. Again, we're talking unit tests here, right? Yeah, unit tests. So we have a bunch of unit tests. We have also tests that kind of run against, you know, uh, the Quaderno sandbox, the, the Stripe sandbox. Actually, in some ways, it's kind of annoying because sometimes those tests fail because of problems on the other end. Mm. Like, actually, we're at the point now where our tests kind of take too long and it becomes annoying. But it, we, it, we'll, we have everything set up so we can't launch unless the tests pass. I mean, barring like an emergency, of course we could, but the whole idea is that it doesn't go live without all the tests passing. So in that, in that regard, we're quite good on the tests. But you know, you, you got to be again there. You got to make sure you're testing the right things. Are you? Did you have blind spots in your tests? It's like you with your translation string. You know, yeah. If, yeah. If you, you don't. Obviously, we test for obvious things, but there's always something that you didn't get around to testing, or forgot to test, or weren't aware that you needed to test. So. Yeah, I like doing uh, the refactoring iteratively. I, I had to do a, a big refactoring just in recent months for a new feature we're adding to feature upvote, which is custom statuses. On, on the surface, it looked like a really straightforward new feature, but actually it touched just about every part of our code base, uh, or at least every part of the functionality. And I started doing it a couple of times and realized you know, it was pretty messy if I just straight in so instead i did start cleaning up the code to make it ready to cope with custom statuses even when they didn't have them and i did this iteratively so i spent a couple of hours improving something ready for it then deploy that and that was a chance just to flush out any problem i made and keep doing that keep doing live deploys i think the kids call it continuous integration these days or continuous deployment we do some. We we do a little CICD ourselves. CICD. So yeah. We're, we're we're hip. We're with it. <laughs> so, and I actually I, sometimes I think there's not that's not too different from the old hack and slash approach. When I first started coding, the company I was with had us like just doing changes directly on the live server. Um, SSH. Edit this file. Sometimes oh I feel, when I when I joined Yahoo twenty two years ago, nineteen ninety eight, there was no. At Yahoo Europe, there was no version control. No, no. wow. Uh, For certain goodness. systems, obviously some systems had version control, but the systems I worked on at the very beginning, I mean, this was one of the first projects we had when I joined was implementing, what was it called? It wasn't, obviously Git didn't exist. It was uh, C CVS, C CVS yeah. uh, which is a local version control, right? It's not even yeah. a distributed version control. Yeah. And it was literally, and we had people working in different offices. And so like when you'd work on something, step one was copy the live version down to your machine. You know, obviously this didn't scale. So. <laughs> Do you hear this going on in Yahoo? Oh my goodness. And big firms, I guess you download the, the file and then you record, you would rename it index underscore old dot HTML or whatever system yeah. you've seen. And then index underscore really underscore old dot HTML. Yeah. Well, if you're good, you don't need version control, Steve. I mean, yeah. 
I, I long ago accepted I'm not good and I need version control. But the thing is, why don't you just not introduce the bugs? Yeah. Then that way you wouldn't have any problems. Steve, have you ever thought about that approach? Yeah, I, I have. And I tried it and somehow something went wrong. I don't know what went wrong because surely my code is perfect, but things went wrong mm -hmm. and bugs got there. It must have been somebody else, uh, the other components. Anyway, yeah, we've come a long way. We've come, we've a, long come way. a long way. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a journey. So that uh, that process I was talking about where I'd make some change to one section and then deploy it and, and then wait a day or two just to be double sure that problems were flushed out. Sometimes I feel like I'm using my customers as testers, but... Uh, well, it's difficult once you have a product with many, many different, you know, possible configurations and parameters and like... You know, you have all kinds of, you know, very quickly it becomes exponential of how many different ways the, the product can be configured. And it can be difficult to consider all of them. And I mean, obviously, there are things you can do like programmatically kind of generating the tests and things, but it can get bigger than you think very quickly. So, yeah, yeah, very quickly. Hey, would you, um, you talked about hiring a coder to help with tests. Would you hire a coder to do the refactoring for you? to do some refactoring or do you think you need somebody who knows the history of the code base that is you i think we need someone who knows the. i mean we have we have a freelancer that we've worked with in our front end code base he's been working with us for many months so you know he's familiar with it although, although he's only very lightly involved the equivalent of kind of one day or half a day a month so i'd probably that would be my first point of call but i think for something like tests it may actually make sense to bring in someone who doesn't know the history Mm. Right. And they could just say, like, you know, here's what this thing is trying to do. Let me test to see if it's doing it. Right. And they have no preconceptions about what's happening on the other end. That might actually make sense. Yeah, I don't know. It's always the question, though, trying to the effort of trying to find that freelancer and get them up to speed on your system and things like that. So yeah. especially take hiring a freelancer and then telling them, OK, improve our code, but don't break anything and don't change anything. Like they might be wondering yeah, that what's wouldn't the point. Work, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it would work. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, Ed, I don't actually know the answer to your question that you started with, which is... Uh, well, thanks, Steve. <laughs> to, ...to what degree you should do refactoring. But I like your your idea of just regularly scheduling a little bit of time for it. And maybe if you haven't read it recently, go back and reread Martin Fowler's refactoring book. Or Honestly, I've sessions. never read it, so that's a good tip. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. I'm pretty sure all the examples are in Java, and not just Java. Java as it was like 20 years ago. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, but it still is a very good book. It's one of those, one of the best um, coding books I've ever read. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things about how to go about coding in the small. Do you use code linters, Steve? Oh, like, um, oh yeah. Yeah, all the time. Different. Yeah, religiously. And I try to do almost everything they say. It's, the idea is to be on zero warnings so that when there is a warning that's important, I'm not, I haven't like, taught myself to ignore it. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, we do that as well. Although I have to say I have an absolute love-hate relationship with them, particularly in Ruby is not a language of, I wouldn't say I know Ruby, but, but I do mess around with our website and stuff, which is in Ruby. And oh my God, you know, this this templating language, Hamel, have you ever come across this? For some yeah. reason we use this and my God, I want to, there's like a Hamel linter thing. I, you know, I don't ever want to meet that guy after I've had a few drinks because it would be ugly. 
but yeah, very love hate related. But we do the exact same thing. We we run these various linters, and and then if it if the linter generates any warning, then the build stops. Okay. So you know, then we have to very pedantically fix. You know, it has two spaces instead of three, or whatever the hell it is. So I find that's a good way to keep the the cruft down. Also, it helps when you have freelancers because then. If the freelancer also is running with the linter, then at least you know that the code you're going to get is it fits your style. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, Ed, before we go, where are you? Are you still in Germany? Last week we heard about your, Germany, epic, yeah. your epic Hannibal-style trek across the Alps. Oh, that was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, no, I'm still in Germany. I'm still mainly on holiday here doing lots of... Actually, this weekend we went to Leipzig, which was delightful. I had been there before a couple of times, but always just for work, just kind of popping in and having a meeting and leaving. So this time it was more the old family holiday. We did an Airbnb, lived in a great neighborhood, really cool. It was fun. Good, um, ate at some nice restaurants, uh, very nice walking around the city. We had, had good weather. So yeah, we're still enjoying the summer. That's why all of this, all of the refractoring is still safely in the future. Not, It's not actually on my plate yet. So... It's that future um, Ed again. Thank you. Ed can do the future Ed is going to be such a hard worker. <laughs> He's going to do a great job. So the most diligent person I've ever heard of. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm still. We're still enjoying the summer. Keeping our fingers crossed that school is going to restart. And um, because if it doesn't, that's going to be a problem. But yeah, getting outside a lot. Uh, later today, we're going to. Later today, we're going to go on a nice hike. Um, what else do we have to? That's basically it. Just you know. Going to the lake, swimming. We went swimming um, in the river last week. That was really nice. Oh, so. I hope things in Barcelona don't get worse before you hear. You've probably been following that bit by bit. I have been following it. It doesn't seem so good. Huh? We've closed. Restaurants are now required to close at midnight. In most countries, that would actually be an extension of normal opening <laughs> hours. But in Spain, that's actually a reduction where people often go to eat at 11 o'clock. Good thing the virus doesn't spread before midnight. But the joke is, it's like gremlins. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure about the logic on some of these rules. I mean, it seems to me if if restaurants are a problem, then we should close the restaurants, not right, just every right. night. And I've closed all the the discotheques and the uh, salas de spectaculos, um, concert halls. They've all closed down. So what's happening is now people are having big street parties. Uh. <laughs> I don't think people are quite working this out, figuring out why these places are being closed. It's to stop people gathering. That is true, although it does seem that there's some connection with ventilation, right? So, Mm, Right, right. In that regard, probably a street party is less bad than in a confined discotheca or whatever. But yeah, probably best would be everyone just kind of stays at home and refactors the code. (laughs) <laughs> the perfect time actually that's the yeah. ultimate answer to your question when should you refactor a code when there's a global pandemic right all right well glad we solved that then i'll, I'll give <laughs> i hope the pandemic lasts long enough our code base isn't that big <laughs> uh, okay i don't even know what to say about that that's probably a good time to, to finish up on that note yeah let's wrap it up Good talking with you, Steve. Good talking to you, Ed. Hey, listeners, before we go, I have a request for you. Is there a topic you'd like to hear us discuss? We thrive on feedback, so please tell us your burning questions. Go to our forum at discuss.bootstrap.fm. I've created a space there where you can post your topic or questions. We have a couple of questions already, but we would like more, so please 
help us out and it'll be great to hear from you and that's it we'll be back next week okay see you ed see you steve bye bye everybody that concludes this episode of bootstrapped you can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm Thank you.